Uh, to be honest with you, I, I'm going to ask that you just pray for me. I feel like there's so much in the, the message today that I can't properly express it. Uh, so your patience with me uh, and your prayers would greatly be appreciated. There's so many rich uh, things in the story of Jonah. Um, you know, and, and we just kind of know this from pictures on our Sunday school walls, right? <laughs> you know, the big fish and all. And that story, just at face level, just, just in a cursory level, is such a fantastic story, right? Fantastic in many ways. But I believe, just like the book of Jonah, and just like the book of Ruth, there is such depths to be mined and things to, under, to be understood here. As we look at Jonah chapter 3, uh, we have already seen Jonah who has been given this call by God to leave the holy place, to stand up and go and deliver a message to these Ninevite people. And it is the one thing that he uh, really does not want to do, and so he goes the opposite direction. Uh, and we know how that story goes. He goes uh, uh, down into the, uh, the port, there into the boat, and then uh, as they are sailing, there's a great storm that comes up. The sailors know that this is the judgment, a divine judgment, and uh, they are afraid that their end is, it has come nigh. <laughs> it's about the end for them. But in God's uh, grace for them, his mercy on these sailors and on Jonah, um, he stops the storm by having Jonah thrown into the ocean and swallowed by a whale. Uh, and this whale becomes a, a creature of God's grace and mercy once again. And so uh, last week we talked about this prayer that Jonah has. Um, as it, it, it sounds like he's, in the middle, he, he's having this prayer as he's going down to the depths and coming back up again. It's probably a prayer that happened a little bit later. But that's the sense. Not only do we see, but last week we got to hear the emotions and feel the emotions of what it is to go down to the pit. Um, and many of us felt like we've been down to that pit. In fact, that's the most common story, I think, among us, that uh, we had those pit moments where God has both sent a storm, a great storm our way, and then there has been a, almost a devolving of our mind and soul uh, to the point that we had to cry out to God. And the good news and the testimony that is uh, throughout, this, throughout this room is that God hears those prayers and he has uh, brought us from the depths, amen. And so we are people thrown up by whales, amen. What? <laughs> no, but we are a people who have been redeemed and we did not deserve it. But uh, we are in a different place than we were before, and it is by the grace of God. Now, the second part of that story yesterday, um, uh, last week, was when Jonah was at the end of his prayer. It seems almost like uh, the center of that prayer was Jonah saying, okay, I'm calling out to you, and you've heard my voice, even though you're in the holy place, you hear my voice from the deepest pit, 
and God, it's as if everything turns. It's as if you can feel the, the, the fish coming up out of the bottoms of the ocean uh, leading towards land. His salvation is drawing nigh. In the second half of his prayer, we see in verse 8, he says this, those who pay regard to vain idols, chapter 2, verse 8. We're not going to have those on the board, so you've got to listen. Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So you have to listen. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So he's saying, for the rest of folks, they are speaking to dead, inanimate idols. The same things that you and I worship as well. We may not have some piece of wood or metal in our house, but we have our own idols that are vain. They are short-lived. They have no power and strength. And, and he says, to the world, you have these vain idols, these gods that you created of your own making. And we, too, gather those idols of our own making into our houses, into our lives. And these idols are stupid they are, they are of no value. They forsake the hope of steadfast love. They are the opposite of the God that Jonah knows and that you, I, you and I know. These vain idols are stiff, created by our own hands, powerless, and they lead us to ruin. That is the opposite of the God that you and I know. For the God that we know has steadfast love. We've said this word before. It's this, this word cherith in, in the Old Testament. It is a, a, sec, a special kind of love, a chesed. That this chesed that, that, that lives on in perpetuity, it keeps on keeping on. It is a bulldog kind of grab you by the nape of your neck and shake you, it won't let you go. That's the kind of love. The steadfast, enduring Never letting go kind of love of God. We don't even have a word for it, except for bulldog by the nape of your neck kind of love. And, and so these vain idols, they can't produce this kind of thing. This is only found in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God that you and I worship. It, it is a kind of love that endures it is a kind of, God, of love that works. You see, vain idols can't do anything for you. But it is a love that works. It is a kind of love that is relational. A God who knows you by name, knows the very hairs on your head, who knew you before you were knit in your mother's womb, he knows you. This is the kind of love. And so Jonah, as he's coming up out of the grave, he's recognizing, oh my, this God. Oh my, this God that we worship. He's not like the rest of the things that you come across. And so today, as we have that as a, a, a foretaste of what's going to happen in chapter 3, it's a it's a reminder to us that be ready because we are about to experience and know a God who's far grander than anything you and I have ever done before, than anything we've known before, anything we pursued before. This is going to be, oh, 
thus I feel pretty inadequate to, <laughs> to preach the sermon. And as we were talking about in our new members class, we are the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones who were on our way with vain idols. We were carrying them in our arms. This is the way we were going. And God said, no, come to me. And we have confessed and we've turned around and now we are the called out ones together. And those idols still call our names. And we have to say, no, I'm clinging to the things of God. And we're learning how to be that. And so we look at the Word of God, we come and meditate on the Word of God together, and we say, show me more, teach me more. Help me to observe what you're teaching us from, from the very beginning until now. And as we look today, we will have a newer experience. We will know God as a God who is both merciful, but he's also just, and he's also gracious. All those things. The, the end of the story last week, Jonah is coming to the top of the water, and, and it, it's, it's a little bit gross, you know, and he's vomited up on the land. And we stopped last week, like, what are we going to do with this vomited man on the, on the beach? What, what's the next thing for him? Well, it, appear, it appears that he goes back to Jerusalem, more than likely, and he is there serving and waiting on the Lord. The last thing he said in verse 9, he says, uh, of chapter 2, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What I vow I will pay. We didn't see any vows uh, in his prayer. We can only guess what that vow might be. Could you guess what Jonah might be vowing? Okay. I'll go. Right? I'll go. So, Lord, when you rescue me from this, I will do as you say. I will complete the vow because salvation belongs to the Lord. I will be your messenger of salvation. I am the recipient of your salvation. I will go. So, chapter 3, verse 1. We finally get to it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, the second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, doing, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah goes. But I want to tell you, we'll find out that Jonah was not happy about it. He went. And he was fearful that when he preached that message, salvation would come. That message doesn't have a lot of salvation in it. It's a word of justice. Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. What we miss a little bit, though, here is in the Hebrew, that word for overthrown 
is also the word that means like to repent, to turn. And so you could, which one is he saying? Is he saying that Nineveh shall be overthrown or that it will turn to him? Oh, Jonah, he likes the word overthrown. That's the way he would hedge on this. Oh, please, destroy them. But there is in God's justice a hope for mercy. Nineveh is a, a great city. Did you hear that? It is also an exceedingly great city. Now, when you think about Nineveh, you great scholars, when you hear about Nineveh, do you think of it as a great city or would you describe it as a wicked city? And when the Bible, when we hear about other cities in the Bible, they're usually just described as wicked if they're not part of Israel, right? It is a wicked city. It is in need of God's judgment. Nineveh is a great city. And I think it means something like this, an exceedingly great city. I, I think about Nineveh, I think about Chicago. Chicago is an exceedingly great city. Anybody been to Chicago? It's an interesting place. There, there is, uh, I think we have pictures. Do we have some pictures up there? They don't know which one to put up there. You don't know which one's Chicago. Aha, yes. It's blurry, that's all right. Took, out your, took off your glasses. A Chicago is a city in which the buildings look down on you. As you go through the Chicago River, you can see how these great, I mean, it's building after skyscraper after skyscraper that fills that place. And the skyscrapers are made in such a way as to reflect the beauty of the river. And as you go, you can see uh, from generation to generation how the architecture has changed for certain, uh, according to the culture and times. And there's uh, one place that is the, the Mercantile Mart. It is uh, a place that is so huge and had so much business going through it, they had a larger postal system within the building than the city of Chicago had. It was huge. And out front, I think there's some pictures of some statues. Do you have pictures of those? Out front uh, is the, the, the heads of these great titans of business. You know, the Rockefellers of the time. And they peer over the city because Chicago is such a great place of commerce. It was it's such a, a leader in architecture, a powerful place. The next place is, I think of another great city, is Mexico City. Anybody been to Mexico City? Mexico City is a very interesting place. What? Ah, okay, good. Uh, Mexico, Mexico City. It is built on a lake. And so that's not, by the way, the best way to build a city in retrospect <clears throat> as things are sinking. But it, it, it's this beautiful city. Uh, it is an expansive city. It sprawls all over the valley. And there are mountains and, uh, on the sides of it. And in the city, there's these great structures that have been built that are uh, a little bit wonky. 
And as you go through the city, there's cars passing back and forth, and the people are everywhere. It's like, uh, as you go down the road, it's like a million ants bumping into each other. Great city, Mexico City. Moscow, that's another great city. We have one up there? Oh, good. Yeah, two is blurry. It's beautiful. It's on a hazy day. In Red Square, this is the picture of Red Square. On, on one side, you have the seat of government, the Kremlin, and right next to it, on its side, is St. Basil's Cathedral, the, the, a picture of religion. And in this square, uh, known as Red Square, it's also known as, uh, another way to pronounce it is Krasivaya, uh, which is the Red Square or the Beautiful Square, this huge square where everything is happening. Even Lenin's mausoleum is there where he lies in state even till today. As you go down into the subways, they, they crisscross uh, the whole place and, and there are large concrete buildings that house many, many people. And then you walk, occasionally you can go into the Red Square and you can see uh, these great, the great military power of Russia doing their steps and their guns and their tanks. And it's a great, exceedingly great city. But in the, underneath all of that beauty and greatness, all this power and money and politics, there's greed and violence. Each of them known for very violent mafias and corruption within the government. And what is amazing about these cities is that they even exist today because of the corruption and the violence and the horror that happens in those cities. This is Nineveh. It is, it is a place that is known for its beauty. It, is, it lies along the Tigris River. People would be traveling back and forth, sailing back and forth, bringing goods. It became a rich place. It became a place of temples, a place of government. And in fact, when it says that it took him a three days journey, it's probably not that he marched around the city, but that because of the seat of government, he as a visiting prophet would have a three days kind of movement within the city to recognize him as a prophet, to give him a housing to hear his message. And so this was a, 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 a developed city. It wasn't some backwoods kind of place, but it was evil. And it is only by the grace of God that it did not destroy itself with its violence. That it is not ravaged by disease. That it wasn't completely destroyed by its enemies. It was by the grace of God. Did you hear me? It is by the grace of God that the city didn't destroy itself. So even though it was a wicked city, God's hand was on Nineveh. So that when the author of the book of Jonah refers to that city, he doesn't say the wicked city. He calls it the city that is exceedingly great. As you've been listening to this story, we've seen some exceedingly great things as well. Do you remember anything else that's exceedingly great in this story? Remember when the storm comes. It is a great storm. It is a 
big storm. Huge. And then this fish comes. Oh, it's not just any fish, right? It's a big fish. Like, this is a big story, right? Like your, your great uncle would tell you. And then we come to this big city, this exceedingly big city, right? And for each of these, God has thrown out, cast out the storm. That's what the idea is. He's cast out this great storm. He has called upon this great fish, and he sends his prophet to this great city. You see, God is the one who throws the great storm because he is a great God. He is the one who sends the great fish because he is a God of redemption and grace. So he sends it in a big way. He comes to the city, this exceedingly great city, because he has his grace on the city. He's bigger than the city. And there's an expectation with this greatness that has been applied in mercy and grace and justice, all of those things that God has been so big in, he's going to be big in the city. And he's going to be big in your life and my life. And so he goes and he preaches this message. And in verse 5 he says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What's miraculous in this story? Well, I think the storm's pretty miraculous. It's miraculous that God would speak to his prophet. Pretty miraculous that he would send a giant whale, fish, whatever it is, swallow him up, spit him out, let him live in there for three days. But it seems even more unlikely that this king would hear this prophet and say, okay, right? It seems almost impossible. And so people have ideas. Oh, well, you see, Jonah was so bleached and he looked so bad that they go, oh, something's afoot here, right? Or that God had caused some disasters. They had, they had other armies that were uh, just outside the city or, or they had had a famine or a sickness so they were prepared for this message from God. And we don't know. Those are only speculation. But we speculate that because we say it is impossible that this king would listen to this prophet. 
I want to tell you, that is how good and glorious our God is. That he holds the, the hearts of kings in his hands and the minds of kings. He can make them go crazy or he can twist them to repentance. That's how big God is. So I don't know what was happening outside, but I know this, that God did something in the heart of the king and the people that was profound such they would then repent. Don't you love that line? The last, who knows? God may turn and relent, and they believed. The king believed. The people believed. And in fact, when it says that that Jonah spoke for one day, right? It's a three days journey, but he only spoke for one day. On the, after the first day of preaching this message, the people got up in such an uproar that they fast forwarded to talk to the king. They were so upset. They were so prepared by God for this message. Have you been prepared by God for a message ready to hit you sometimes? Like things are happening in your life, and you go, oh. Oh. I see how he's been working and calling me to himself. I was the Ninevites, but it it wasn't just one man or one woman or one king. God was doing a miraculous work in Nineveh. What drove them to respond like this? Well, there there was this message of judgment, right, of justice, but also a hope of mercy. Okay, theologians. Can God change his mind? Can God change his mind? Does God change? Matthew Parker, where are you? Does God change? Or is he immutable? Matthew Parker, I mean, I'm sorry, Matthew Glaze. You can answer too, Matthew Parker. The big fancy word is God is immutable, right? Systematic theology. God does not change. He does not mutate and do different things. But yet, here it seems like God says, I'm going to destroy your city. He doesn't say, I may not destroy your city. If you repent, he just says, I'm going to destroy your city. And then we see that God doesn't destroy the city. Did God change his mind? When God spoke with Moses and Moses pleaded for Israel, for, for, Israel for, the, for the children of Israel, did God change his mind? When Abraham pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah, did God change his mind? Hmm. It's a tough one, isn't it? God is a God who is full of mercy. God is a God who is full of justice. God is a God who is full of grace. This is why it's helpful for us to be the people of God, because there are no vain idols like God. (laughs) So you're trying to look around like, what else is like that? Nothing. God is God all by himself. I like to say in the church, you don't need no help. He is God who is God of grace, God of justice and mercy. So let's, let's look into that for a minute. You know, a God, in order to be a God of mercy, 
you have to be a God of justice too, right? How do you know mercy unless you know justice? Like you have to know justice in order to get the reprieve, which is mercy. And mercy says that God will not give you what you deserve. You deserve all of the justice. You know, just recently there was a, a, a trial in which a, uh, a driver had failed to, uh, had been negligent, uh, and he was driving a truck, and he ran into some vehicles and killed a bunch of people. And do you remember what happened? He got 101 years for this. And you kind of go, what? That seems a lot, you know? I mean, horrible. And he, and he should be, there should be justice. And so, you know, the, the case came and everyone was, was upset. And they said, like, this doesn't seem right that the law is so strict and you add it like that. And like, what is it? 101 years, is, there's no chance at redemption. There's no chance at freedom. And so the idea was, yes, that justice is so severe. And there was a hope for some kind of mercy. And the same judge who presided over the case 101 years also came back. I don't know how he did it, but he said, no, we're going to knock it down to, I don't know, what was it, 15 or something? Justice and mercy. You see, God is always just. God is always merciful. And God is always gracious all at the same time. Let that sink in for a minute. So when he's talking with Moses, and Moses is saying, Lord, please don't let that happen. And it says that God relented. Just as in this story here, when God relents, he changes his mind. He's not changing his mind. He's not like, oh, well, that was a good idea. I didn't think of that, right? It's usually when the people of God appeal to that mercy and grace and say, oh, Lord, may your name be always known as a God of grace and mercy. And so God, in a, in a, in a way, reflects that in that moment because it's the right time, the perfect time to show his grace and his mercy or the perfect time to show his justice. And it was just at the right time the prophet came to the people of Nineveh and expressed God's judgment so that at the perfect time he might release his mercy. Ooh, right? That is the great God that we serve. And sometimes you and me, like in the middle of it, when we are in his Justice, when we feel the justice in life, when we are experiencing the, the consequences of our actions or we're receiving the consequences of the sin of someone else's actions towards us, we're like, where are you, God? And he is still there. And what is our response, people of God? In the midst of feeling that justice, the, 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 the judgment against sin, what is our response to be? What's that? We trust him. And we call out to him for mercy and grace, right? And we wait because at the right time, we'll know God in his mercy and his grace. Just a minute ago, I read, I read from Hosea and how God had rescued his people from Egypt and he had taken them to this land, and they cried out to him, and he provided for them, and they ate well, and they planted crops, they did their thing, and they forgot 
God. You see, the circumstances changed. So the, the expression of God needed to be different in that moment. So now they must receive the consequences of those things so that they may be turned back to him again. This great city hears the message and they repent. And as they repent, God hears their cry and he removes the calamity that he had promised for them and they are saved. Here is this prophet and he is following God's mission but he doesn't have God's heart. Have you ever done that? Like I know what I'm supposed to do but my heart's not in it. Sometimes it takes a while for our heart to come around and catch up with whatever, what we're doing. It's possible to be on mission for God, but not have his heart. This is our prophet Jonah, and he's, he's sick with this the whole time. People of God, God loves the city. Exceedingly wicked cities. His grace is already, on, is already on the city. The grace is already working in the city. And he is calling us as his people to be a people who walk with the heart of God, who care for the city. To be faithful preachers of that message. God is a God of justice. And you are in the way of that justice. And you are going to suffer from that justice. And you have suffered from that justice. But he is a God of grace and he is a God of mercy. Can you not see the grace around you, the breath that we breathe, the peace that you have, the, the Lord has cared for you, that he's continued to seek you and go after you even though you continue to turn your back against him? You see, God is, is coming for you. Will you repent? Will you say, I'm tired of this. I'm not going out there but vain idols. I'm gonna follow after Christ. People of God, we have a great story of good news to share with an exceedingly great city that God has his eyes on. Will we be faithful? Will we see our neighbors? Will we hear their cries? Will we not give them the good news? Or will we, will we be carried away with our own vain idols? Pursuit of things that just don't last. There may be someone here today whom God is working on your heart. That you still have been pursuing these vain idols. You've never turned to him. And today is your day. Today is your day. I pray that it will all come clear to you. There is a judgment. God, God, you've experienced that judgment. And there is a final judgment that we do not come back from. And today he is offering you both justice and mercy. How will you take that message? How will you take the message of Jonah today? Will you hear at the end when he says to, that, that he is going to bring judgment? Are you going to hear within that mercy? He offers it to you today. He offers it to you today. Give your life to him.
follow after him. Recognize that you are a sinner in need of salvation and follow. This is the good news that came from the belly of a whale to you and me today. May we live in it. Amen.